Good evening. I'd like to give you a warm welcome as we come to worship and praise God tonight. A welcome if you're joining us online. And again, I'd like to repeat the welcome we gave you this morning, Rupert. We thank you for your ministry this morning and we look forward to God blessing us this evening too. Just one notice is that we have refreshments after the service, which everyone is welcome to stay for. So refreshments after the service. Now, what is it that you are proud of? What is it that you give honour to and praise? What is it that you glory? Well, our first hymn this evening says, I will glory in my Redeemer, whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. Anything we glory in apart from him surely is irrelevant. Let's stand as the music starts and sing our first hymn. Shall we commit our, our time to God in prayer? Let's, let's pray. Almighty God, uh, we come to you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We come to you 
as our sovereign God. And we thank you that you are our sovereign God. We thank you that you hold the world in your hands. We thank you that everything is under control. We're grateful that it's not down to us. We're grateful that um, the decisions we make, Lord, because uh, things would go in a real mess. In fact, they do go in a mess um, because of what we do, but thankful that you can bring good from where we mess up. Lord, we pray as we think about what was preached on this morning, as we go through the difficulties of life, we thank you that you are behind the scenes and you are there in control. And as we've been singing, we are held firm by your grace. One day we will pass from this life into eternity and you will be there waiting for us. Lord, one day we will be there at the judgment day and you will be our judge. And Lord, if you are our saviour too, what a fantastic place to be to hear that combination, not guilty. Lord, we pray for any who do not know you as their saviour. We pray for any, Lord, who haven't realised that their sin, Lord, is going to get them into so much trouble. Lord, we pray if it is your will to very night that you would be gracious and that you would be merciful and that you open the eyes of those who don't care. We pray that you would convict them of their sin. We pray that your Holy Spirit would point them to Jesus. We pray if it is your will that tonight they will come to know you as their saviour. We ask that as we come and worship and praise and learn and listen from your word, that you would help us to focus and to concentrate. That we would not be distracted uh, by by Satan and the devil and invading thoughts. And we ask that tonight you would bless us because of your son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, our reading this evening is from Acts, um, Acts 24. And we're going to be reading verses 10 through to 27. So Acts 24. If you've got chapel Bibles, page 933. Acts 24, starting from verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to Paul to speak, he replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defence. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, and they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found 
when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing amongst them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that Paul should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. And at the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favour, Felix left Paul in prison. And so reads God's word. We're going to um, sing our, our next hymn, our next song, which is Go Forth and Tell, O Church of God Awake, God's saving news to all the nations take. Proclaim Christ Jesus, Saviour, Lord and King, that all the world his worthy praise may sing. We stand and sing as John leads us with the music.
let's again bow our heads as we come in prayer to our great God. Uh, Father God, we thank you that you are a loving Heavenly Father. We thank you that your steadfast love reaches out to thousands upon thousands. We thank you that it crosses generations. We thank you that your love is not restricted by country borders. We thank you that you are patient. And that's why we're here tonight, because of your love, because of your patience, because of what Jesus achieved on the cross. Bridging the gap between you and us. Where we have caused the offence, he has taken it away. He has taken the punishment that we deserve. And as we, of us who are yours, as we reflect on that love to us, as we reflect on ourselves, Lord, we pray that you would give us the same desire that Jesus had when he came in this world. Lord, he looked around with love to those. He wanted to draw them as a mother hen calls the chicks. We pray that we would have that kindness and compassion to those round about us. We ask that you would give us opportunities to spread your word, to talk about you. Lord, whether that's with a neighbour, whether that's with a friend, whether that's with a, a work colleague, whether that's within our own family. We pray that you would give us opportunities to speak about you. We pray that we would be brave enough to take those opportunities. And we ask that you would bring blessing on them. Lord, as we are faithful to you, we pray that you empower would work through your Holy Spirit and you would change people's lives. We pray and we ask that you would bless uh, the work done this week uh, in teaching the children in the Sunday school. We pray for the talk that was given at ACE, for the talk at First Tuesday at Connect. We pray for the preaching uh, that's been done in prisons up and down this country today. We pray for those on Hope Explored and all those that have gone to Honest Questions. Lord God, we pray that as the seed is sown, it would bring you back honour and glory. We pray that the word of God would be going into hearts that are ready to receive it, hearts that are willing to receive it. We pray that hearts that are being changed by it and we look one day to see fruit as we faithfully proclaim your word. Lord God, we we think of those who um, we support abroad and we pray for them. Pray for James and Rachel in Cyprus and we ask that you'd bless them, ask as they seek to reach out to the African students, as they seek to reach out to the Turkish Cypriot people of Northern Cyprus, that you would bless your word there. We pray for Rosie in Papua New Guinea, we thank you for her. We know that she's just due about back into the UK and we ask that you'd bless her. And the work that she's been doing over the last few years, Lord, you would bring fruit from. Lord God, we we pray that um, you would be um, with those who are struggling. Whether that's uh, struggling with work, whether that's struggling with money, whether that's difficulty with health, either physically or mentally. We pray for those who need help. And we ask that they would cast their care upon you. We pray that you would strengthen them. We pray that you would comfort them. We pray that you would be 
a real friend to them. Lord God, we want to pray about Ukraine. Lord, we know you are sovereign. We know that you are in control. Lord, we see the the bloodshed. We see the dying. We see the war. We see everyday humans displaced from their homes. Lord, uh, struggling to survive without the, the, the life's necessities that we just take for granted. We pray if it is your will, you could bring an end to the killing and to the bloodshed. We pray if it is your will, you would bring good from whatever this war is about. Lord God, we want to remember those who are struggling, who are suffering with the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. Lord, we ask that the aid would reach those who need it. Lord, we pray for James as he seeks to direct aid to the more remote villages. And we pray that those little churches would be a real witness to you in a, in a Muslim country. That they could see people loving them despite their religion. Lord, we pray for those on holiday if we come to half term. We pray that they would have a break, a restful break, physically, mentally and spiritually. We especially remember John and Esther as they are away at this moment in time. We thank you for them and we commit them to you, asking that you would bless them in their time of refreshment. Lord God, we remember us as a church. Lord, we were warned this morning that life is going to get harder. Lord, the devil is active in seeing how he can attack Christians. Lord, we thank you that you are in control. We thank you that you are sovereign. We pray for your protection. We ask that uh, you would help us to pray for each other. That we would uphold each other in our prayers to you. That you would strengthen us as we go into an ever-increasing hostile world. And we pray especially for our young people. Lord, as there's so many pressures on them to conform in their friendship groups, we ask, Lord, that they would take to heart our children's talk this morning. We pray that they would be wise in their decisions. With what they do with friendships and with money and with work, Lord God, we pray that you would instill upon them the fear of the Lord. And then that would put everything into balance. And as we uh, come to hear your word, we, we pray for Rupert. We ask that you would bless him. We ask that you would, through your Holy Spirit, bring your word with power into our hearts. Lord, you know each of our hearts. You know what each of us needs. You know whether it's encouragement. You know whether it's to draw us back to you. You know whether it's to speak to us for the very first time. Lord God, whatever is your will, we pray you would do tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before Rupert bring God's word to us, we're going to sing our third hymn, which is Facing a Task Unfinished That Drives Us to Our Needs. A need that undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. Let's stand and sing as John leads us with the music.
Well, can I uh, invite you to turn to Acts 24, Acts 24, and I just want to say it's always uh, a joy for me to return to um, Forest Fold and to uh, be uh, with you here and to see faces that many of which I recognize and I can't for the life of me remember your names. However, it is a blessing uh, to engage in the life of this church in this way. Can I just say, this is a very silly personal thing, but I have a problem with my hand. And you lovely people shake my hand most warmly. Um, And then I've suffered all afternoon. (laughs) So um, if you'll excuse me, I will just smile and enjoy talking to you. uh, But please, maybe you wouldn't shake my hand so beautifully as you did this morning. I apologise for being so ridiculous. Right, Acts 24, verse 22. But Felix, the Roman governor, having a a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he, that's Paul, should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. Now, I wonder if you've ever come into a room and found yourself in the middle of something that's already underway. Uh, And it's a bit like that, the verses that uh, I've just read, where we're breaking in on a uh, something that's already underway. We're in the middle of a trial. Uh, Verse 22, uh, Felix put them off, who is them, And he orders, verse 23, that he should be kept in custody. You wouldn't immediately know from this text who the he is. Well, the he is Paul, as I've just said. Uh, In chapter 21, a few chapters before, he had arrived finally in Jerusalem. And he went to the temple. And he was falsely accused of bringing Gentiles into the temple and defiling it. And the outcome was a riot. And they're actually trying to kill him when he's rescued by Roman soldiers. The next day, he appears before the Sanhedrin, and his presence before the Sanhedrin caused another riot. You can read that in chapter 23. Paul was rather good at causing riots. Not that he intended to, but that was the result of the antipathy which was felt against him and the gospel. Then there was a plot, uh, a group of more of 40 assassins determined to kill Paul and they were rescued by the prompt action of the Roman commander, this man who's referred to in verse 22, Lysias the Tribune, and he who packs him off with an armed escort to Caesarea to this governor Felix. While there, the Jewish high priest, no less, and others, that's the them who are referred to in verse uh, 22, the them, these Jewish leaders, came to press charges against Paul before Felix, and Paul has just responded, and in verse 22, Felix put them off. 
That is, he put off the Jewish accusers. He's going to postpone his verdict until Lysias comes. Lysias is never coming, at least not in our passage, not for the next two years. So it's a way of putting the thing in cold storage. Although, verse 23, he gives some liberty to Paul. He gives the rights of a Roman citizen awaiting trial, but not condemned. Uh, It's not like Peter, like we thought of this morning, chained between Roman soldiers. Uh, Paul has a good deal more liberty than that. And it's in this context we have this fascinating account of Paul before Felix and Drusilla. Now, often when we read uh, the book of Acts, you don't actually know what Peter said when he met somebody, the interactions. But here we do. And we get this little portrait. It's a bit like we picked up from the ground uh, a piece of paper which has Paul's headings. I mean, that's the sort of... We, we don't have the details of what he said. I mean, the detail would take, you know, a few seconds to say, but we know this is what he spoke about, faith in Jesus Christ, righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Now, he clearly didn't just say those words and shut up. He obviously spent time talking about each of them. And I take it that this is recorded for us. We are meant to dwell on this and to consider the message and the way that Paul goes about it. But first of all, we need to say, here is a God-given opportunity. This encounter was not Paul's doing. We read in verse 24 that Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who is Jewish, and he sent for Paul. This was not Paul's idea. This was Felix's idea. Now, it's a curious uh, occasion because it's not a court appearance. And it wasn't, the nor- it wasn't normal for Roman governors to hobnob with prisoners. So what's going on? Well, there is a backstory here. There always is, with whoever we meet, a backstory of some sort. You see, we read of it in verse 22. Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, which is what Paul is, uh, the phrase Paul uses to sum up being a Christian and the Christian message, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off. He clearly has had some previous exposure and information about Christianity. Uh, You never know when you speak to what has happened in somebody's life or what may be inclining their minds and hearts to take quite seriously what you say. Perhaps it was because his wife was Jewish, maybe she talked to him a bit, perhaps because he was the Rome, you know, he was the Roman governor of Judea, and maybe he fancied himself as a you know, bit of an expert on Jewish affairs, uh, because that was his job. Um, some suggest it was sheer boredom. Um, they say we have to remember the loneliness and boredom of Roman courtiers abroad. I mean, he couldn't listen to Netflix, but here was Paul. He'll do, you can imagine. And notice in verse 23, 24, <clears throat> that Felix heard him speak. That is, he didn't shut him up. He didn't say immediately go away. He listened. That shouldn't be taken for granted. There are some people that I've tried to talk to about my faith and they just really don't want to know and they let you the fact, let you know the fact they don't want to know. Immediately they change the topic. They make no reference to anything you've just been speaking about and, and they brush you off. But <clears throat> Felix listened. But we've got to understand that Felix was not a promising listener. Um, Paul presumably knew a bit about him, 
he'd been born a slave, he'd been freed by the mother of the future Emperor Claudius, and he'd grown up knowing two Roman emperors as boys. So he has the highest social connections, but he's not a nice chap at all, Felix. Tacitus, the Roman writer, (coughs) says of Felix, I mean, he doesn't spare him. This is his, you know, this is his description of his character. A monster of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of the king with the spirit of a slave. Uh, Bad news was Felix. Do you know, sometimes very unlikely people will listen to the gospel. Um, in, in this chapter, Drusilla is the daughter of the Herod who got struck down by the angel and died the worms that ate him. It's his daughter. And in the next chapter, chapter, well, chapter 26, <coughs> one of that same Herod's sons, Agrippa, wants to listen to Paul. So here are, these are Herod's family, and they're seemingly fascinated with something to do with Paul and the gospel. And you wouldn't have expected it at all. God can make that happen. And you and I may suddenly find ourselves talking to somebody, potentially, and there's an opportunity that God opens up that you did nothing to bring about. But, you know, they happen to sit next to you in the bus or whatever it was. I remember uh, years ago, I was, I'd spoken at a student conference in, in um, Kenya, and I was staying with this absolutely delightful couple who had no sense of time at all, as far as I was concerned. Uh, and when it came to getting to the airport to fly back, you know, I was, you know, isn't, shouldn't, shouldn't we be there? Anyway, they, are, they brought me to the airport, sure enough, I mean, really late. And I rushed to the desk, and the lady looked at my name and looked. She said, I'm really sorry, your seat's been taken. And then she said, um, but would you mind if we put you in business class? Well, <laughs> I, I thought I, would be, I wouldn't mind. I was absolutely delighted to be in business class. So I, I sat there in business class in splendor. It was amazing. And just opposite me, uh, you know, a comfortable distance away, was this business room from Columbia. And, and, you know, he asked what had I been doing and I asked him what he'd been doing. And I said I'd been speaking at a Christian conference and I started to talk to him about what I'd been preaching on. And I said, do you ever read the Bible? No. Have you ever read the Jesus? is amazing, really. Anyway, I, I started to tell him about the gospel a bit. And just before I'd left home, I had thought of this at the very last moment. I, I found a gospel. Uh, I brought a gospel with me. Uh, I forget which gospel it was, Mark or Luke or John or whatever. Anyway, I took it out and I gave it to him. And it was a nice gospel with a nice picture on the front of a of photograph of a city. Anyway, I gave it to him and he took it and he looked at it and he suddenly said, that's my house. My ha- what? It was a photograph of the city of Bogota and he could see his house on the front of the gospel. My goodness, did he want that gospel? Oh my, it was amazing. I mean, I shouldn't have been in that seat. I shouldn't have been there at all. And I, I, I went home thinking, my goodness, where did that come from? Well, God had organized that opportunity. And occasionally I pray for that man. I have no idea why God put me next to him, except perhaps for the gospel's sake. Well, God put uh, Felix next to Paul. So, a God-given opportunity. Secondly, a God-given priority. Paul has the ear of the Roman governor. 
Now, he is not being treated really fairly. Um, the Roman commander Lysias, who gets a mention here, in his letter to Felix, when he sent him down to Caesarea, he said, this man, I quote, has done nothing deserving death or imprisonment. There was no charge in Roman law against Paul. Um, and Paul has the opportunity to, well, have a very different conversation. He could have said to Felix, look, this is really very unfair. Please, would you listen to my case uh, again? Could you please? He could have pursued his own interests. He, I'm only there, he could have said, because of the hatred of the Jews and the assassination plots. There's one assassination plot in chapter 23. There's another one in chapter 25. And this is the guy who could have sent him, set him free. Uh, but you know, Paul never discusses his case here at all. Uh, and, and yet, uh, actually, we discover in verse 26 that if he had and said, well, I'll slip you a bit of money, um, he might well have won his freedom. And he could perhaps have rationalized it and said, you know, thereby he would have been free to spread the gospel. But instead, he talks to Felix about Jesus. He talks to Felix about Jesus. Uh, Jesus said, didn't he, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's what Paul did. You know, you won't speak very much of Jesus if your priority is yourself. And if your priority is yourself and being comfortable and getting what you want, you probably won't have very much to say about Jesus. We'll keep silent or we'll talk about football, which is much easier than talking about Jesus. I wonder what your priority is. Jesus said, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. That's what Paul sought. God-given opportunity, God-given, God-centered priority Thirdly, Christ-centered gospel. What he does instead, in verse 24, look at the end of verse 24, he spoke about faith in Jesus Christ. He talked about Jesus, and every word counts here. He talked about faith in Christ Jesus. Faith. He's not just informing uh, Felix and Drusilla, let me tell you about Jesus. He has a purpose. He's informing them that they might understand what it means to put their faith into Jesus. That's why we talk about Jesus. Not so, I see people, information doesn't save people. There are plenty of informed people, people who know about Jesus who will go to hell. They're informed but they haven't put their faith. But every single individual who ever has put their faith in Jesus will be in glory. So it's faith, and the word in, in translated in in English, in the Greek it's a bit more emphatic. It's faith into Christ Jesus. It kind of implies a change of location. I was over here, but in regard to Christ, I need to move towards him. I need to stop being preoccupied with my money or my football or my pleasure or my career. I, I, I want to put my priority into Christ. I, I shift, shift from confidence in myself to confidence in Jesus. I was outside Jesus, now in Jesus. That's what a Christian can say. And maybe you've never said it, but that's what it is to be a Christian. You were outside Jesus, but now you're in Jesus. Faith into Christ. It's interesting, that's the word he first uses. The word Christ is not, you know, a surname. It's a title, it's a king, the promised 
king. And there's a whole history behind that that Drusilla would have understood a bit, and Felix, if he's well acquainted, would know about, which is there are promises about a promised king all the way through the Old Testament. Isaiah 9 put it so powerfully, unto us a a son is given, a a, a child is born, and, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Far above every emperor or governor. You got that, Felix? Christ. Christ. And he's Christ Jesus. And, and Which is to say that's a real name, a real person, somebody who came among us. Uh, so he ends up talking about our need to respond to Jesus as the Christ, Jesus, the real man, and, well, we're not given the extended version, are we? But he must have talked about his life, he must have talked about his death, and he must have talked about his resurrection, because that's what he always does. In fact, if you just look in verse 21, the verse before, that's what he's been speaking of. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. The resurrection. Uh, he kept talking about the resurrection. If you went through the previous chapters, in chapter 22, when he's before the crowd who tried to murder him, when he gets the chance to talk to them, he talks to them about the resurrection. In chapter 23, when he's before the Sanhedrin, who also are not his friends, what does he want to talk about? The resurrection. In chapter 26, when he's talking to Agrippa, who's Drusilla's brother, also a child of this wretched Herod who dies of the worms, uh, he talks to him in chapter 26 about the resurrection. The resurrection wasn't something occasionally he mentioned. It wasn't something he sort of had pinned up on his wall and one of the points of doctrine he believed. It, he, he, it was absolutely fundamental. It was not theoretical to Paul because Paul had been on the road to Damascus when there was this blazing light and a voice who spoke to him and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, Lord, who are you? I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. And Paul suddenly knew. Paul suddenly knew without a doubt This Jesus, who'd been crucified years before, was talking to him, was living. And all the apostles spoke of the resurrection as something they'd heard and seen and known and experienced. In fact, you couldn't be an apostle if it wasn't like that. The apostle John heard Jesus say in Revelation 1, I think some of you teenagers were studying it yesterday, I am the living one. I died, but behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus is alive. The apostolic testimony to Jesus and in particular to his cross and his resurrection. That is the saving truth that saved people in the first century and saves them in the 21st century. But he then, it then moves on, doesn't it? Have a look. It, he talks about, he talks about faith in Christ Jesus, verse 25, and he reasoned. He reasoned about Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Just stop on the word reasoned. Um, it's, it's a Pauline word, which is to say, in the book of Acts, it keeps talking about Paul reasoning. It means discoursing, explaining, debating, arguing, uh, unlocking. 
uh, putting before people. Um, he, for, for Paul, Christian truth wasn't something he just, well, yes, I do believe that actually. It was something he wanted to talk about and explain and answer questions about. This word reasoned in regard to Paul's preaching is used of him in Thessalonica, in Athens, in Corinth, in Ephesus, in Troas several times, and in Caesarea. The logic, the, the gospel made sense to Paul. That's why he, re- he wasn't an idiot. He was a very clever man. But, you know, it wasn't his cleverness. He was gripped by a conviction that this made sense. And it does. It still does. And he talked about three things bound up with Jesus. They're all bound up with Jesus. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Righteousness. Righteousness is not a word you very often see in the newspapers. It's not much in our society's vocabulary, either in the first century or the 21st century. But it's the word the Bible insists on using some 545 times according to my concordance in your Bible. Righteousness. And the truth is that righteousness is what none of us are that none of us bring. Righteousness is that which God embodies without which none of us can bear to be in God's presence. And it's something that we need to reckon. Righteousness. There's not some sort of hill you climb up and you get better and better and a bit nearer God and if you keep going eventually you might make it. None of us can do it on that basis. Remember Jesus in Mark 10 when somebody ran up in great passion and said to him, good teacher. Great beginning, you might have thought. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Oh my goodness. That's a coach and horses through all versions of religion in this world except except the gospel. Because all religions are basically about ways by which we may somehow muddle through and make it and lots of non-religion like You know, I'll be decent sort of person, really, aren't I decent, good enough? Actually, it's all the same lie that we will make it and we will make some sort of grade by our own performance and you won't. And if you are here this evening and you think you will, can I tell you, you won't. No, you won't. When you see God, you will not think that you've made the grade. In Romans 3 and Psalm 14, it says, it tells you how many people are righteous. You remember? This is biblical mathematics. Zero. None is righteous. No, not one. It comes in the Old Testament and it comes in the New Testament and it was true then and it's true tonight. It's a devastating verdict because only the righteous can stand before the righteousness of God. When our reality confronts God's righteousness, we will flee in terror. But Jesus is not like us. In fact, he is the righteous one. The righteous one. He is the one person who's walked on this earth who is righteous. Peter said it. 
In chapter 3 of Acts, verse 14, Stephen said it in Acts 7, verse 52. Ananias said it in chapter 22, verse 14. And John the Apostle says it in 1 John 2, 1. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the only righteous one, the one in a league of his own, one that, who is completely unlike any other human who's ever stepped on the planet. And our only hope is to run for us from ourselves. To him. Now, some people want to think of the righteousness that is referred to here as Paul simply explaining that righteousness is required by God, which is true. But they want to say that that's what he must have talked about rather than a righteousness provided by God. And I find that extremely unlikely because when Paul writes about righteousness, he doesn't just say, now you need to know that you're not righteous and righteousness is the only thing that will stand before God so you've had it. No, his whole point is that actually there is a righteousness that isn't to do with our performance, a righteousness that is given to us, a righteousness that isn't ours, but is the righteousness of the righteous one. Given, given. 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, God made him, that's Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, into him, we might become. We might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel deal. My, it's a, my guilt goes to Jesus and his righteousness, the only righteousness there is in this world. I become one absolutely immersed and clothed and covered and presentable to God forever and ever in the righteousness of God himself. That is the most stunning message in all the world. I think that's what he talked about to Felix, righteousness. Then he talked about self-control, because it's not just enough to say that this is the righteousness you need and you can be forgiven and, and that off you go, now you're forgiven. Because actually, if you really understand what it is to be forgiven because you put your faith in Jesus, there must be, there will be, there has to be an impact in your life, a likeness to Christ. Self-control is what he talked about here. You see... It is absolutely key. These are not the deed, this is not the deed that saves us, but the deeds that flow from being saved. It is what marks reality that our lives are touched by Jesus. Um, this is the pattern of Paul's epistles. Paul's epistles, generally the first half is, is doctrine. He declares the gospel. He sets forth the truth whether it's the truth about the gospel or the church, always about the gospel, always about Jesus, always, in fact, about the church. And then, the implications of that, what that means to live holy lives as a result. Because we have come to faith, by the power of the Spirit, and self-control is a key likeness of Jesus. Do you look in the mirror and see self-control? Well, of course not. Not in some visible way. Self-control isn't visible, is it? Well, ask your wife for your self-control. Ask your children, very revealing, are you self-control? Ask yourself if you, if you have any uncertainty, are you really self-control? Because self-control is part, the key part of the likeness of Jesus. 
Um, A fruit of the Spirit in us in Galatians 5. Titus 2, Paul wrote, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now, this was pretty close to the bone for Felix and Drusilla. It's pretty close to the bone for me, isn't it? For you. Self-control, the life, the likeness of Jesus. Now, Felix had gone to great lengths to seduce Drusilla. Uh, She was already married when he met her. She was regarded and spoken of as a stunning beauty, one of the beauties of the ancient world. And uh, Felix fell for her. He worked to break up her marriage. He got her eventually to divorce her husband and she became his third wife because self-control was not a feature of Felix or Drusilla's lives and it's not a feature of many people's lives today. Self-control shapes who you are, how you behave, what you say, what texts you send to people. Self-control shapes how you respond to impurity and pride and fury and lust and bitterness and selfishness. Self-control comes out in patience and being forbearing and being kind and gentle in church and in the street and with your neighbours and at work. It perfumes marriages and homes and churches and society. The fragrance of Jesus and self-control is at the heart of the beauty of Jesus' life. Self-control, Felix. Self-control, my goodness. And then the coming judgment. The coming judgment. You know, Christ and his apostles were not ashamed to speak of judgment. And judgment, like righteousness and self-control, are all to do with Jesus. In John 5, 22, Jesus said, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. It is Jesus who you will meet on the throne. It is Jesus who has the nail prints of the price he paid so you could be forgiven, who will declare the verdict of all eternity of God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit on your life. It is Jesus. And Paul is unashamed to tell pagans about judgment. It's not something he sort of pushes at the back of his message. You know, we want to make the gospel palatable. No, he's not ashamed to talk about judgment. In Athens, when he speaks there, his final words are this, that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he's given assurance by raising him from the dead. They are completely bewildered by what he says. But he presents judgment. If you preach a gospel without judgment, without the wrath of God, you know, the message of the cross becomes meaningless. Why on earth did Jesus have to die? If he's got a God who's a decent chap anyway and would have let you off anyway, why the cross? It becomes meaningless. But the Bible (coughs) speaks about a meaningful, terrible, frightening, wonderful, just, absolutely necessary day of judgment that is coming. It is described in graphic detail in Daniel 7, in Matthew 25, in Revelation 20. A great white throne and him who was seated on it and from his presence 
the earth and sky fled away and there was no place found them for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. This is, you'll be there. And the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. The dead from every generation and all peoples everywhere judged before God's throne. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the coming judgment. We cannot be true to God and play down judgment. And it's only when you see that judgment that you see how precious Jesus is. You see how precious his cross is. You see how precious the blood of Jesus is. You understand that your only hope is to run and fling your arms around Jesus. Christ-centered gospel. And finally, God's mercy rejected. Now, you might have thought, with this wonderful account, you know, if this is a lovely example of gospel preaching, if I'd been writing it, then I would have (coughs) had it lead into a wonderful response. You know, here is the gospel, and look what it does. And there are plenty of stories, of course, in Acts of glorious response, 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, Cornelius, the Roman centurion, Philippian jailer. (coughs) But not here. Not here. He hears this wonderful declaration, and what does he do? Well, firstly, there's alarm. There's alarm. We read that in verse 25, that Felix was alarmed. My goodness, was he alarmed. Uh, How right he was to be alarmed. He, he took in the force of what Paul said. He had some sense of his own guilt and his danger. Uh, mind you, he tries to mask his discomfort. Verse 25, go away from the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. I'm a bit busy. My diary's a bit full. I'm the governor, don't you know? That's the sort of idea. Which, of course, the reality was, it wasn't anything to do with his being a bit busy. The reality was, I'm absolutely terrified by what you say. And it's not at all comfortable. And I really can't cope with any more at the moment. See, if you tell the gospel truly, people will reach a point where they realize this is not the least bit comfortable. The gospel isn't actually a comfortable, easy message. I wonder if you're looking for a positive, happy response. Smile, Jesus loves you. Well, yes, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But you don't enter his love until you run to him in repentance, until you run to him with conviction of sin, until you run to him to escape the wrath to come. And that opens the door to the love that is poured out in Jesus. You ought to be alarmed and run to Jesus. Felix was alarmed and he didn't run to Jesus. I wonder what you've done, because all of us in here have done one of those two things. You just think, what's the answer? Have you been alarmed and run to Jesus? Or have you been alarmed and not run to Jesus? Because you you have to choose which it is. You have to choose. Well, here was alarm, but secondly, there was double-mindedness. Look in verse 26. Verse 26 At the same time, this is Felix, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. At the same time. It's just one Greek word. 
together with. It means that although he was afraid, at the same time, something else was going on in his heart. He hoped he'd get money from Paul. In the trial, verse 17 of the chapter, Paul referred to the fact he'd come to Jerusalem with money. He'd collected from Gentile churches to give to believers in need in Jerusalem. You can read all about it in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And Felix had an antennae for money. Uh, He loved uh, privilege, he loved power, he loved luxury, he loved pleasure. And those things are all rather expensive. It was illegal, technically, for Roman officials to seek bribes, but Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that it was rampant among Jewish officials, and it was certainly rampant in Felix's heart, the love of money. There's nothing new about the love of money. You remember Gehazi in the Old Testament, or Judas, or Felix? Dangerous passion. Here, he, he was afraid, but he wanted some cash, please. The heart is deceitful. Above all things, says Jeremiah. The fear of God, fear of God and the lust for money kind of met in his heart and it was the lust for money that won. I wonder what's winning in your heart. And finally, there's this hard-heartedness, isn't there? Verse 26, Felix sent for Paul often and conversed with him. Now that sounds really rather good, doesn't it? He sent for him often and conversed with him. But just look in verse 26 uh, again, because the sentence doesn't begin, he sent for him often. It begins, so. That is, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. Do you see what's happening? He's driven by wanting money. Now, God stood above that, and what mercy God extended to Felix. Felix frequently listened to perhaps the greatest evangelist of all time other than Jesus Christ himself. And he had two years of Paul. How hard is the human heart? Harder than granite. Harder than granite. You could listen to Paul. You could see Christ and crucify him. You could listen to Paul for two years and ignore the gospel. Sometimes you might imagine if only you had, um, if only people had the chance to hear properly. If only I was Rico Tyson, could do the job properly. Then they'd all, you know, they'd all have come to faith by now. Don't be surprised by the hardness of hearts. And so, desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. There's a little history behind that. Uh, Felix put down some street riots very savagely. Savage, that is, against the Jews. And the outcry was such that the Romans, who were pretty sensitive about trouble in Jerusalem, recalled Felix. And this is just before he gets recalled, and he's trying to compensate. He's trying to please the Jews for his own advantage. And Felix walks out of the pages of Scripture, turning his back on the light, heading into darkness. And as far as we know, that's where he ended, in the darkness. Sobering, isn't it? To have had such privilege, such opportunity, and to bin it anyway. Wonder what you're doing with the gospel. Wonder what you're doing. You can be brought up in forest fold. And to have such privilege, such opportunity, and bin it anyway. What are we to learn? Three things to learn. Don't be surprised. Don't be stumbled. Don't be despairing when our testimony is rejected. People rejected the Lord Jesus. 
People rejected the Apostle Paul. And in our day, they will reject us too. Not everyone, but many. That's actually a rather important thing to understand in the UK today. Because by and large, we live in days of very limited response to the gospel. I think our nation is a bit like Felix. We've had special privileges over centuries of Christian influence and proclamation. And we've reached a point where we've fallen in love with money and fallen in love with pleasure and fallen in love with football and fallen in love with ourselves and anything and other than Jesus. And when you've had great privilege and spurned it, it brings a hardness of heart upon a whole culture. Now, God can change that, but I think that's the current reality. Don't be surprised at the granite in the human heart. Not everywhere, not every person, but you'll find it for sure. Don't be surprised. Secondly, don't give up. Paul did not walk away and decide the gospel didn't work. He wrote to the Romans, it remains the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And the book of Acts, just turn a few pages over, at end of Acts, of the whole book, last two verses of Acts, Acts 28. Paul, this is in Rome. He's a prisoner with a lot of freedom. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. And what's he doing? Well, the gospel clearly didn't work. They've rejected it. No, he's proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. He went on speaking, whoever rejected him, you be like him. You be like him. You be bold with the gospel. You tell the truth. You can't open the hearts, but I tell you somebody who can. The Lord Jesus can open the hearts. And he does. Don't give up. And finally, don't trifle. Felix is like a child with food on his plate that he plays with, makes castles with, and makes motorways with, and does anything and everything except eat it. And he has the food and he never takes it. And if there are any of us here tonight who are like Felix, can, I be, can you be assured you are in great need and you're in great danger? And you need a great saviour. But there is one. There is one. Run to Jesus. Run to him. And cling to him like you've clung to nothing else. And never let go. Because he alone is the one who can save you. Don't be a Felix. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. There was a man I read about a little while ago. American. He went to a Billy Graham mission a few years ago now and he heard the gospel and his heart was strangely warmed and moved and he went up afterwards to talk to somebody and he professed repentance and faith and he was given this little card that he filled out and he put his name in and he said that uh, he, he had uh, he put the date in when he'd put his, he, he responded to the good news about Jesus, the Savior who died for me, and I have put my trust in him and repented, and I believed, and he put the date, and he put it in his pocket, and he drove home, and on the way home, he was killed in a motor accident. And when the police recovered his body, the only indication of who he was was the slip on his name that said that that day he'd given his life to Christ. Before it was too late. Don't trifle. Don't trifle. 
because your eternity is at stake. Run to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we would long that all around us there'd be people running to Jesus. People who come in here to this building who would run to Jesus. Those of us who ran to Jesus long ago, clinging on to Jesus, never letting go of Jesus, understanding yet more how wonderful he is and more wonderful still, our Redeemer, our Saviour, our righteousness, the righteousness of God. Lord, we long to have hearts that beat with a passion for Jesus, more than for sport, more than for pleasure, more than for marriage, more than for money. We beat hearts that beat for Jesus and long for his glory in our lives now and for all eternity. We thank you, Lord, so much that you do save people. And we long here in Crowborough that you would save people in numbers whose lives are opened to this gospel. And may we be bold to speak of our Lord Jesus. Amen. We're going to sing our final song, <coughs> which is a song uh, I sometimes imagine the Apostle Paul singing some of our songs, and I think he'd have enjoyed singing this one. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That was his message, wasn't it? I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name, Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Saviour's love, through the storm, he is Lord, Lord of all. Join the Apostle Paul and sing this song.
he shall come with trumpet's sound. Oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Amen.